Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Welcome to the Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Michael Baranowski, a political scientist at Northern Kentucky University. With me today is political and policy analyst Kristen Matheny. Hey, Kristen. I am doing okay. You know, I'm I'm pretty excited about this. This will be the first uh, listener mail episode that, that you and I have done together. Yeah, I'm excited too. These were some really good questions. Yeah, so. I think so too. A, a lot of a lot of really good stuff. And if you're ready, we can just kind of plunge right in. Let's go. Okay, here we go. So I wanted to start with uh, uh, a question, kind of a series of linked questions, really, from Scott, who's uh, one of our biggest supporters. And I should say Scott has for a long time been, um, I'll say, frustrated by our seeming dismissal of uh, of claims, his claims, and claims of some people on the right, that there may have been essentially a concerted effort by uh, those in the intelligence community, at least some in the intelligence community, to illegally hinder the Trump campaign. So I, I, here's the question that he asked for, for Kristen. What's your take on the recently released testimony of former Deputy Attorney General Bruce Orr and former FBI employees Lisa Page and Peter Strzok? Why was Mueller appointed when there was no evidence of collusion after nine months of investigation? Now that we know that former CIA Director John Brennan lied about seeing the dossier until after the election, how much exposure do you think he has? And finally, were these people duped by the Clinton team, or is there a more sinister motive here? So that, that's, that's a lot for you to take on, Kristen. I just say, have at it in whatever order you want. Okay. Well, yeah, there's, there's a lot here. And I have to say that, uh, Scott, I am also quite frustrated with the fact that uh, these claims have been dismissed. And I mean, it, it's pretty clear that the media has largely ignored it. You know, I think those of us on the right sort of know why the media has largely ignored it. I think people on the left can, can also, you know, imagine why too. Um, but one of the things that uh, you touched on the first question um, regarding um, the released testimony of Bruce Orr, um, and and maybe why there hasn't been a lot of acceptance of, of this testimony and why it hasn't been unpacked in the media. Um, I think it's really important. And, and again, I'm not a conspiracy theorist. I, I tend to write off conspiracy theories and dismiss them. However, I do think that there, where there's smoke, there's fire. And I think that a lot of what happened was a conspiracy. Um, I think that a lot of it goes back to Christopher Steele having special interests um, going deep into uh, sort of this relationship with this Russian, uh, this Russian business tycoon. His name is Oleg. Oh, oh yeah. Good luck with these Russian names. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I know. Um, his name is Oleg Derap. Yeah. Hold on a second. <laughs> no, I understand. I, I struggle with those names too, even though I read a lot of Dostoevsky and Tolstoy. Derapaska. Yeah. Okay. So, um, okay. So, 
it, a lot of it goes back to Christopher Steele sort of having this relationship with Oleg Deripaska. Now, here's the thing about this relationship, um, because when I first heard this name, I also sort of rolled my eyes and said, oh, boy, you know what, you know, what, what things are going to be uncovered? And, you know, is, the, is this all just sort of this big conspiracy theory and smoke and mirrors? No, it's, I, don't, I think there's actually some meat here. Um, and just allow me to go into it. So in 2012, um, Steel, Christopher Steele worked for a private firm. Um, that had a contractual relationship with this Deripaska guy. Um, and so he had these ties with this Russian business tycoon. This Russian business tycoon, Deripaska, wanted to obtain a visa to be in the United States. And he came to the United States quite a bit over the next five years between 2012 and, and the 2016-2017 uh, changeover. So he was here quite a bit. And so, you know, there there have been a lot of questions um, and the answers have been revealed with this or testimony. And one of the things that I found most alarming, more so than the than the struck and page, um, you know, the, those files that were sort of dumped uh, or documents that were dumped is I think a lot of people overlooked the Bruce or testimony. Um, and I and I think we need to pay more attention to it. I think the most important thing to recognize is that um, Bruce or was really uh, duped. I think um, not just by the Clinton campaign, which is I, I know leading to another question, but he was also duped by Christopher Steele. Um, Steele sort of used him um, as a conduit for sending this intel, quote unquote, to the FBI. And I think that Bruce Orr being involved, being married to, you know, he was obviously married to somebody who was contracted by Fusion GPS to do opposition research for the Clinton campaign. There are all these sort of unsavory ties and you know, to say that Bruce Orr shouldn't have stepped down um, or at least, you know, sort of revealed this information to his employer, that's part of why he was demoted. Um, but I, I think there's something to it. And, you know, also, I think the media has largely ignored a lot of the ties between Bruce Orr, the DOJ, the FBI, and the Clinton campaign. And a lot of that revolves around Bruce Orr. Um, he was the one who was sort of the pipeline for information. and. Um, Mike, what was the next question? No, that's okay. No, there's a lot in there. Um, were they duped by the Clinton team or is there a more sinister motive here? Well, you know, when it comes to Bruce Orr, um, I do think to some extent he was duped. I don't know that that I would point the finger at the Clinton team. I do think that there was a sinister motivation in that there's been a lot of speculation that Christopher Steele was working for this Deripaska guy. Um, he's actually the person who fed the theory to Bruce Orr and Bruce Orr later, you know, gave that theory to the FBI and the DOJ that Paul Manafort was involved with this Russian businessman. So again, you know, I, I, I kind of sound like I'm, I'm creating this, uh, I guess this little map of, in this cast of characters and stuff like that. But this is, this, this is all stuff that was uncovered in this testimony that was released. Yeah. So, you know, I'm not, I'm, you know, I'm just sort of repeating what Bruce Orr confirmed. And, you know, like I said, um, it was Peter Strzok and Lisa Page that actually introduced Bruce Orr to an FBI agent. Um, and so they were sort of involved in, in this conspiracy as well. So, you know, do I do I think that there was a sinister motive and, and something behind the scenes going on here? Yes. And I do think that there was a concerted effort to try to dig up dirt um, on, on Donald Trump, specifically regarding Russia. I think they thought that 
um, Christopher Steele had reliable information when he probably didn't. I think that they overlooked the fact that um, Christopher Steele had ties to this Russian businessman who hated Paul Manafort. Um, they, you know, he had accused him of stealing money from him. And, um, you know, so I definitely think, like I said, where there's smoke, there's fire. And I do think that there, that there's a lot there that we need to be paying attention to. Now, will the media, you know, catch on to that? Will they, uh, you know, will, will they report on this? Probably not any more than they already have. Um, and also this story is so convoluted and these people, you know, uh, there are so many people involved and, you know, the, the idea of the 2016 election, the Clinton campaign, I feel like people have largely kind of gotten over that. And now we're, we're moving on to bigger issues. I wish that there, that we would pay more attention to this because I think it speaks volumes about, you know, these unsavory relationships between, um, you know, these, uh, these companies like, uh, Fusion GPS who dig up Oppo research and, uh, these large scale presidential campaigns campaigns in the government. Yeah. Well, um, I, I feel like I should definitely uh, present my view, even though I have in the past, but I don't want people to think, well, you just kind of let her say that. And you know, Cause you and I disagree entirely on this issue, just probably about as completely as we're likely to disagree on, on much of anything. So here, here's my kind of take on it. You know, um, I, I feel like when I hear this, I think of, one person, one person immediately comes to mind, and both you and Scott are going to hate the analogy, but and you'll know why in a minute. Michael Moore. Um, oh boy. Yeah, exactly. I, <laughs> I when I one of the things when I teach in research methods, we talk about logical fallacies, and one of the logical fallacies we talk about is what's called argument by innuendo. And whenever I uh, whenever I do that, at least in the past, what I've done is shown part of Michael Moore's film uh, Fahrenheit nine nine eleven which basically he has this great sequence where he, you, you, after watching it for three minutes, you would think that essentially George W. Bush basically flew a plane into the World Trade Center himself, practically. I mean, making all these various oil and Saudi prints and all these other kind of connections. And it always just makes me roll my eyes and say, my gosh, you know, what a total fallacious argument that is, even though, and that, that's what makes this argument by innuendo so powerful, I tell the students, is that all of the individual facts are certainly or may be correct, but it's the kind of bringing them together sort of thing that where it all kind of falls apart. And this is what I think is the case here. So I just see this as the rights version of uh, like a Michael Moore movie, basically. And, um, and so for that same reason, I reject it. But it's not just me, I believe, who rejected it. You know, the Justice Department's inspector general looked at uh, these allegations and they found, yeah, you know, Strzok and Page and these folks, they definitely had personal animus and they behaved uh, incorrectly, but they found no evidence that actually affected what they did. And secondly, I'd point out that the uh, House Judiciary and I believe government oversight committees, when they were run by Republicans and had Republican majorities, they essentially found, I mean, they recommended to the the Republican attorney general, by the way, the one Wheeler, who was the acting guy, who was Trump's guy, that there be a special counsel. And they made the same recommendation to Republican Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell. And that went nowhere because I think really this is just one big argument by innuendo there. Sure, there's a lot of smoke, but that's because there are a lot of people on the right who are desperate to send out these smoke signals and make essentially what is a whole lot of nothing into something. So that's kind of my view. I think that's probably pretty characteristic of the view on the left in general on this issue. Well, you know, I, I think that uh, when it comes to conspiracy theories, uh, you know, I tend to be a little more discerning, I think, than a lot of people on the right. Um, and I, I think that with 
this particular theory, um, I think a lot of it was backed up with the or testimony because I heard quite a bit. Um, I used to, I used to work at a conservative leaning news outlet um, for a long time, and there were a lot of people coming through those doors who had a lot of wild theories. And you know, I'll, I'll let you speculate as to who they were and what their theories were. And I I poo pooed them. I thought they were ridiculous. I had heard the theory about Christopher Steele and um, you know going back to this you know these these ties to Russian businesses and, and how they were trying to get to Trump. And uh, when the or testimony came out, I, I kind of sat there wide eyed and it wasn't so much a confirmation bias. I wasn't looking to confirm anything. I just wanted I really wanted to hear what he what what he said, what he was able to confirm or deny. And I think a lot of things, a lot of the whispers I had heard kind of turned out to be noise. Um, but I do think that there is uh, the one person who comes to mind when I think of all this. And I think what you know, on the right, a lot of us believe that all this kind of goes back to Christopher Steele. And so I think maybe that's where the focus needs to be. You know, Bruce Orr um, in this testimony comes across as kind of a pawn in all of this. He was played by Christopher Steele. Um, and, um, you know, C Christopher Steele was pipelining information to Bruce Orr all the way almost through 2017. So this isn't something that was, you know, happened several years ago. This is something that was fairly recent. So I do think that um, there's some truth to it. Do I think that everything that the, you know, right wing pundits are saying on Fox News and uh, on other outlets is true? No, you know, I, I think a lot of it is is just theory and conjecture. But um, I do think that that there is a lot of smoke here. Whether or not anything's going to happen about it, I don't know. Yeah. Well, uh, one thing at least we've, we've established is is that, Scott, you have at least one sort of one one of us is actually to a certain extent in your corner on this. So. So, yeah, there's <laughs> that. That's kind of nice, you know. So anyway, um, let's let's move on. Uh, we have Adam from the UK writes. Uh, Hi, politics, guys. I'm a longtime listener. He says, I've been here through the love the government, the weird trumpet intro phase, and now thankfully back to love the government. Uh, I too. Yeah, well, I, I, yeah, I, that was always my favorite as well, you know. So uh, I, that was kind of, I like to think of that other phase, kind of our, our failed smooth jazz intro kind of thing. I don't know what I was thinking. But anyway, um, he writes, uh, uh, I had a question regarding online uh, media that I wanted to ask. He said, increasingly, the focus is on being first out the gate. I'm looking at you, BuzzFeed, instead of quality, fact-based reporting, and that concerns me. He says, do you think that the online media has it too easy at the moment regarding editing and updating articles after their initial upload? Time and time again, I follow the same link to a news piece that someone else did two hours before me, and I get a different narrative. Sometimes the changes are big and sometimes not so much, but it is very difficult to see what has changed without relying on sites such as Internet Wayback Machine. Do you think the media has a responsibility to point out edits and corrections on their articles more clearly? Maybe all versions of every article should be archived so we can refer back to them at any time. Keep up the fantastic work. Now, I was when I heard, when I realized, Kristen, that you and I were going to be on the show, given your background in in the media world and the political media world, I thought, wow, this is a great question for you. And so I, I'm curious too, to hear your answer to this one. You know, uh, I, I, I love questions about the media and how, you know, um, I guess for anything involving the first amendment and, and the media, because I, I have some really strong opinions about it. And, and I have to, I have to say, yes, I, I do think that, uh, 
these online media outlets like BuzzFeed or, you know, anything else, right-leaning, left-leaning, whatever, I do think that they have a responsibility to fair and accurate reporting. And I think that we've seen in the last couple of years, again, you know, Donald Trump has really, you know, pointed the finger, but, but a lot of politicians on both sides have pointed the finger at these news outlets and said, listen, you're trying to be the first out of the gate. You're reporting facts before you check them. And, um, you know, that was sort of uh, how these, these different sites like Snopes and Washington, you know, the, the Washington Post, the fact checker type uh, sites came about is because, um, you know, th there was this inaccurate reporting. So, yes, I do think that uh, these organizations have have the I, I guess they should do their due diligence and, and figure things out. And if they do make edits or they fact check or they you know change the article or they change the tone or whatever, um, they do need to cite that and they do need to show the changes or perhaps archive that the different versions of the article uh, we actually we ran into this problem a lot at uh, the old organization that i used to work for um and we we made it a point because you know because being sort of a um notoriously uh politicized you know it, it's a company that definitely has a bias and i think that the company owned the bias and because of that, we were often criticized. And so one of the things that that we did is we were very careful about noting when we made edits and what those edits were. And we are also criticized for being slow out of the gate. And, and part of the, the reason for that was because um, the fact checkers would spend a lot of time fact checking because if not, you know, we would just be railed against by other media sources. So, you know, yeah, I, I do think that, that, that there does need to be some level of um, fact checking going on. And I do think that that, you know, those changes need to be noted, um, especially, you know, when you're dealing with um, this sort of proliferation of online media where people are reading things and they're just assuming that they're true. You know, too many people assume that what they read online is true. And uh, I mean, that's a whole other that's a whole that's a whole episode. Yeah. <laughs> right there. But um, but yeah, I, I definitely agree with that. Well, you know, it, it seems to me also that maybe even a, a bigger factor driving not just the fact checking thing, but a lot of a lot of what we see these kind of junk stories or underreported stories is just the, the the environment is so incredibly fierce and competitive and and being first out the gate and you know and getting out those quick those quick kind of uh, hot take tweets is just kind of more and more what almost all organizations have to do and. You know, it's frustrating to me, and you, you and I talked about this a little bit, is a, a lot of these kind of big old legacy media sites that have the that have the pull and the resources to kind of be a lot more careful, they tend to, they definitely tend, I would say, to lean toward the left a little or a lot. And, and to me, being somebody who wants to hear from both sides, it's frustrating to me that there aren't more organizations that have that kind of that kind of, uh, you know, uh, institutional force behind them on the right. I mean, you have the Wall Street Journal, and I'm thankful for the Wall Street Journal and a couple other things, but, but it's, it, it's difficult because of what it takes in, 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 you know, in this media environment to kind of just to survive, essentially, I think. Oh, yeah. And, and on the right, you know, a lot of these major media organizations and these, these companies 
are were formed um, in a reactionary way yeah. to what was going on on the left. And I, you know, a lot of these, um, you know, the the left is very quick to criticize these sites, like for example, uh, Federalist, or you know, um, I, I mean, I'm I'm not a huge fan of Breitbart, but Breitbart is another one. These these emerged because of what was going on in journalism, and they're reactionary. So, uh, you know. It, whether or not you want to say the chicken came first or the egg came first, you know, was it because of these left-leaning, you know, your your New York Times or your Washington Post or whatever? Was it because of these organizations that these right-leaning organizations came to be? And then did we become competitive because of that? Or did the right-leaning, uh, you know, media organizations, did they raise the stakes? I mean, I, I think it's kind of a moot point now, but it's, I think it just goes to show you just how competitive and cutthroat this is. And the fact that we're even having to talk about this kind of goes against the, the whole idea of journalism as it, as it began, you know, I mean, Walter Cronkite, Cronkite would be rolling over in his grave right now. He was, you know, he was sort of the, 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 the gold standard in terms of reporting. He reported the facts. And now we have, we're, we're dealing with these problems where we're, we're questioning the facts. And I think that that's alarming on its own. Will oh, it go yeah. away? Oh, yeah. Probably not. <laughs> you know, because they they do. You know, these these companies exist because they get advertising and and subscriptions, and and they're looking to make money. And so the juicier and you know sometimes slimier the article and and clickbaitier the title, um, you know, the, the more money they're going to make. But um, yeah, I I think this is a big issue. Yeah, without yeah. a doubt. All right. Well, let's see. Uh, next, we have, well, you know, uh, one of the issues that. Jay and I discussed on our last, actually it was on our bonus show, was that anti-abortion bill that was introduced by uh, Senator Ben Sass. And, and both Jay and I agreed that not caring for an infant after a live birth, whatever the circumstances, was morally wrong. And a number of listeners said, well, wait a second here. And we got some, some comments about that. And, and I'm really glad, again, Kristen, that you're here today because whenever we just kind of have, you know, like, just two guys talking about these issues. I feel like, you know, that's a, it's a little limited. And so I think it's good to have a non-male perspective on this issue. And like I said, we had a number of questions on this. Um, there was, uh, let's see here. Um, let me find one here. One from, from Raph who writes, Hi, I just finished listening to the bonus show, and I'm a little confused on the discussion you had. You talked about babies being born alive after abortion and doing life-saving measures for the baby. You both seem to say that, of course, it's absolutely necessary to do whatever it takes to keep the baby alive. What you don't discuss is the heartbreaking cases where babies are born with diseases or issues that make them not capable of life. These are over overwhelming reasons for late-term abortions. It sounds like you are saying that for these babies, parents and doctors are committing infanticide if not every medical procedure is done to keep the baby alive for as long as possible. I personally have a friend who had to make that decision. She chose to carry her baby to term, but chose to do no extreme medical measures, and her baby died 48 hours later. Does that make her and her doctors murderers, especially if the new law had passed? Thank you for clarifying, and I love the show. Um, you know, honestly, Kristen, I got to say, I hadn't really thought about that perspective, which suggests to me that maybe I hadn't thought quite deeply enough about the issue. But uh, I think I think uh, Raph raises a, a important point, and I was wondering to get you know, I was wondering about your perspective on this. Yeah. So um, this is, I mean, obviously this is a this is a really um, sort of uh, emotional and loaded topic for a lot of women, and I'm no exception. Um, but 
I think that uh, I think that Raf raises, a, like you said, a good point about um, just exactly what do because I believe that um, the language that was used was that uh, the doctors should uh, use reasonably diligent care if a baby is is born alive after a failed abortion attempt, um, and I think that a lot of questions and concerns, you know, if you get beyond sort of the, the political um, arguments on either side, you have kind of this anti-abortion argument on the right, this, um, you know, this argument on the left opposing that language. Um, and I think that, uh, I think ultimately what it boils down to is this issue of reasonably diligent care. And I think that that is probably what Raph is talking about, because it's difficult. Um, you know, when, when, uh, when these you know, legislators write write these write this language. They they make it purposefully vague. Um, I think we all know that. And to say you know that that a doctor who doesn't use reasonably diligent care will be subject to um, you know penalties or or you know prosecution or or whatever. Um, I think it's difficult, and I think that was one of the reasons actually why there was so much opposition to this. Um, what is reasonably diligent care? And um, you know, I, I guess I would go back to the the question of, you know, in terms of a political argument, is this an, an, an anti-abortion bill? I would say it's not um, because it doesn't limit a woman's ability to have an abortion. Um, it doesn't really limit a woman's abortion rights. Um, it doesn't curb that in any way. And it doesn't really have anything to do with, um, you know, controlling a woman's body and what she, you know, the decisions she makes uh, for herself. This disregards the, the life of a baby that's born after an attempt. And, and I agree with you that, you know, that doctors should take this, you know, whatever, reasonably diligent care to preserve the life if, if the baby's born. But I think that that's sort of the, the crux of this. So, um, no, I don't think that it that it necessarily makes um, you know someone a murderer for not saving the life of a baby. I think that the question is how do we define reasonably diligent care, and that's really difficult because you know as any medic, I'm not a medical professional, but I, I imagine like it is you know in any other profession, um, you know, uh, it it just depends on the circumstances. Sure. And and you know this 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 issue is is morally charged, but I think you can kind of remove that a little bit and say, well, from a policy perspective, let's define this, let's redefine this, and maybe open up this this conversation again. You know, I think it's a great point because there's the policy perspective, and then there and, and Raf's question focuses much more on kind of policy, real life consequences for people and that sort of thing. And then we had we had a comment that kind of looks at it more from a political perspective, and this is a comment from Brian. And he wrote, uh, let's see here, when Democrats voted against the, the born, uh, born Alive Abortion Survivors Protection Act, said that was no different than voting for the right of a family member to make a decision about resuscitation for an incapacitated loved one on life support, period. Yet Republicans are so desperate to keep their religious base for the 2020 election that they're willing to completely lie about it to pretend that these rare failed abortions result in perfectly healthy fetuses. It's just, it's not just rhetoric. It's completely false. All the while, in many states, birth control remains a forbidden topic in school or school-based clinics because those with religious views think everyone needs to follow them despite science and basic, basic medical ethics. And this is not even to mention that people not being properly educated about birth control leads to the first trimester abortions that most everyone disagrees with, the fetuses that could turn out perfectly healthy. To me, it's just contradictory. So, you know, and I think, obviously, 
this is being used as a as a wedge issue, certainly, and I, you know, very effectively. There are a lot of people who feel very very strongly about this, and I think there's a lot of mischaracterization of this. And you know, as somebody, uh, I'm kind of torn on this because I definitely have a strong bias toward life, but I also have a strong bias toward choice. So I'm all screwed up on this <laughs> issue, basically. Um, you know, so yeah. But what what I have a strong bias against this hypocrisy. And so when I see laws being passed that essentially, you know, like, like laws that are supposedly uh, uh, clinic safety laws, and I'm air quoting this as much as I can with my voice, that really seem to be designed simply to close down clinics and things like that. I, I have a big problem, certainly with that. I can come down squarely against the hypocrisy, even though on the issue itself, I'm thoroughly confused. And as someone who's not a parent, I, I think, and as a guy, I think I have just about as little kind of uh, moral authority, I guess you could say, to speak on it than anyone you could possibly think of. So. Well, you know, like I said, this is a morally charged issue. But again, this is, you know, a lot of uh, Democrats were saying that they thought that this would that the Republicans were ramping this up to become a campaign issue and that it's actually um, a pretty it's divisive, but it's popular even amongst um, a lot of Democrats. I have a lot of Democrat friends living in South Florida. I have a lot of um, Hispanic Democrat friends who are Catholic. Um, and so they sort of, you know, they, they sort of carefully tread that line on this issue and talking to them, you know, a a lot of them sided with, um, you know, Ben Sass on this issue and said, you know, I understand that, you know, we have a moral obligation if a baby's born, you know, and I, and I think it brings up a lot of questions as to whether, whether or not this is just rhetoric. Um, you know, I actually, I, so I, I actually read this, this piece of legislation and it's pretty defined. Um, I, I think it would be very difficult to say that, that this is a Trojan horse sort of a bill. I do think that Republicans have have tried to sort of send through legislation that, um, you know, put these restrictions on abortion clinics, you know, with the, with the aim of closing them down and sort of chipping away at abortion rights. I, after reading this, don't think that that's what this bill is trying to do. I think it, I think it pretty clearly defines as much as it can anyway, um, that this is only, um, this isn't removing abortion rights, but it's only affecting decisions that are made after a baby is born alive. And, you know, I, I think it calls into question, um, you know, where it, it's less about where the baby's life begins. I think most people agree that the baby's life has begun. It has been born. It has be begun. And I think that um, this particular bill um, was, you know, written to clearly define that. And I don't think that it's an attempt to chip away at abortion rights. And I know, you know, this was sort of a, a hot button issue for a lot of Democrats. And, and this was their rallying point. Again, was it true? No. But on the right, you know, they were, you know, they were trying to rally their religious base. Um, do I think that that's what was actually being done here? No. So I don't think that to say that this was an issue of the religious right versus the science and fact-based left, I, I don't think that this was what was going on. It was pretty clear what the boundaries were in this bill. And so, you know, I, I read it, I read it for that. Well, I, I, I take your point to a certain extent, but, but I guess one thing that I find sort of that goes toward the argument that this was more uh, more political rhetoric r riling up the base than anything else is that it seems to me that the the, the law the 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 uh, Survivors Protection Act that Congress actually passed in 2002 and that was signed into law by uh, George George W. Bush actually covers essentially 
this very same ground. So I feel like, okay, we have legislation that deals with this. So why would we be passing or attempting to pass essentially just about the same legislation? And then you have Ben Sass, who likes to, and I, I got into this on Supporter Show with Jay last week, but I'll say for everyone here, who likes to hold himself out as this kind of like uh, more post-ideological than thou type of person. You know, I'm above all this little partisan type stuff calling, you know, talking about infanticide and so forth. And I just feel like this makes me just just shake my head and say, oh, come on, Ben Sass, I know what you're doing. You're trying to get your credentials up among the, among the you know, further right so that when you make your inevitable run, probably in 2024, you kind of have that flank a little nailed down, essentially, you know? Yeah. And, and I, you know, I think that there, there, I tend to believe that there's always the political motivation for this sort of stuff. I'm sure that there's a political motivation here. I mean, but I'm not the biggest Ben Sass fan in the world. He tends to be a little holier than thou and um, a little preachy. Um, but, you know, I, I, I don't necessarily think that the nation and, and certainly Congress has changed since 2002, but I don't think the nation is the same. And, you know, it, this is this is law that exists. I mean, infanticide is is illegal, um, and this this is not a new issue. This has been brought up um, again and again, and I think that um, it, it it is something that it is a conversation we need to be having um, because you know I think most people I, I would go out on a limb and say that most people believe that it is wrong, um, but you know is this is this something that's purely political and just political rhetoric, you know, somebody, you know, ramping up for, for a future election, or is this something that we really need to pay attention to? I mean, I, I think you could make the argument that even if one baby is born, um, you know, after a botched abortion attempt, um, and even if one baby is born um, alive and survives, um, you know, through, through the, through the next few days and, you know, is sort of out of the woods, I think you could say that, that that's cause enough right there. Um, but it it is a rare circumstance, so I will give them that. All right. Wilmer, one of the executive producers on our show, in addition to being a listener, uh, had this to say about a recent discussion we had in the show about national security and the situation at the border. Uh, he write, uh, you've discussed, he wrote, you've discussed this topic several times, and I always think that Mike is a little naive regarding the maneuvers that immigrants like me are willing to make to enter the USA. People do anything to enter the country. To me, it's like the USA is a water spring and all the other countries are a desert full of thirsty people. People dream their entire life to enter the USA. Also, I know that Mike is very passionate about some of the condescending language that some right-wing people use against the brown immigrants, but from a practical matter, I have not met a single left-wing person who doesn't lock their own house, car, and so on. A world without borders only works if everyone was super nice like Mike, but the reality is what most of the world is not like that. That's why I said naive in the same sense that Mike uses to criticize libertarians. That being said, I think the money for the wall could be better spent in something else. Well, uh, I, I certainly, that, that's, that, that's interesting, I guess. I feel like, I don't, I'm not really an open borders type. We actually do have an open borders politics guy. Trey is kind of our resident openish border sort of person. And, and I take, I take Wilmer's point, you know, a lot of people make that argument. And I certainly believe that we absolutely need a better border security system. I think we need to spend a lot more money on it. I think we have a system that was designed for a time that is 
long past. I think our asylum system definitely needs to be reworked and that we need, we need to spend a lot more time and energy on this. But I guess my main point is that it seems to me, based on what I understand about what the problems are, the main problem isn't that we don't have enough walls. The main problem is that we don't have a, a better system at our ports of entry, have better and larger immigration law, more immigration law judges and resources and that sort of thing. So I would be for spending what President Trump wants to spend on a wall times, probably times five, but on these other things that I think are going to have much more of an impact, essentially. Tristan, uh, what do you think? Well, I, I think what uh, this boils down to is is um, whether or not um, the wall is just a deterrent, because I think a lot of people on both the right and the left have said uh, that that um, a lot of people on the left, and this is why they, they voted for, you know, a secure fence um, at one point, um, why a lot of people on the left have uh, sort of agree with the issue that we do need some sort of a barrier. Um, and it's because it's a deterrent. Um, but again, I think that when it comes to the wall, I agree with you that there are a lot of legal issues and, and that it's going to be a long time before a wall is built. And there are a lot of legal issues that that come with it. I do think the wall is a deterrent, um, but I do think that it will stop people from from literally stopping at nothing to cross the border. Um, and of course, the statistics have been overinflated on both sides. Um, and I, you know, uh, there's been a lot of fact checking as to, you know, the Trump administration saying that hundreds of thousands of people have been stopped. Uh, there's been a lot of fact checking about the people on the left saying that, you know, only a few thousand people have been stopped. You know, the number is probably somewhere in between those two. Um, and it's and it's a big gray area. And there we really don't have a precedent for it because we've not had a sort of successful systematic barrier at the border. Um, so we really don't know. Um, in theory, if that will stop people from coming over. And so I think the question is whether or not it's it's simply a deterrent, because if it's simply a deterrent, um, then, you know, then it, it also we need to be talking about other ways, like you said, of of uh, ramping up border security. Do we need more better technology? Do we need drones? Do we need more personnel at the border? Um, and we we could also be putting some of that money into um uh, I guess improving the asylum system because I think just about everybody on both side, uh, both sides of the aisle believes that the system is broken um, and that people who really are waiting in line to get here um, aren't getting in. But I do think that um, that Wilmer makes a, a, a really a really good point about the fact that people will stop at nothing, and I don't I don't blame them. You know, I I don't I don't think it's a bad thing to have people coming here who want to be here. Um, but I think that um, you know. I think the question is whether or not it is simply a deterrent um, is, yeah. is really what's in play. Well, I, and I, I agreed that it's a deterrent. I mean, if we built a wall, you know, uh, 30 feet high and 20 feet down into the ground and from, from sea to shining sea, it would, you know, obviously that would make it harder for people well, yeah. to cross. So I don't question that it's at least somewhat of a deterrent, but in part I say, well, you know, we need to look at the opportunity costs here. What else could we do be doing with the money that we spend on this big, ugly symbol? And, you know, would it be more effective 
for, well, the, the health and prosperity of not just people in the United States, but the people who, you know, God bless them, want to come into the United States, most of, who are, most of whom are not bad hombres, but are decent people who want better lives for their families. And, and I think there are a lot better things we could be doing than building a wall with that money. Yeah. And I, you know, um, I was listening to some of the comments that like Dan Crenshaw made. Um, and obviously he's, you know, representing a district in a state that's directly affected by this policy, uh, Texas. And, you know, I think that there's been a lot of alarmism on both sides about this, just like everything else we've discussed today. You know, you have the political argument for something against something and it's, you know, they're trying to capture your emotions and, you know, they're, they're looking to 2020 and maybe even 2024. But um, Dan Crenshaw makes, makes, really good points uh, when he speaks about this. And, and he's he's made some points about um, the fact that there are people coming across who aren't in safe situations and that, you know, nobody wants to, to separate families. But, um, you know, a lot of these people coming across aren't good people. So, you know, a lot of them aren't bad hombres. I, I totally agree. And, I, and for me, it's not a racial issue at all. But the fact that there is that there are some, you know, we have a serious drug problem and that that's sort of a ground zero area. I, I think we need to, to pay attention to that. Will the wall necessarily stop drugs from coming across? The, is, it, is it is it sort of a, a, a an end all be all to all of these problems? No. And, and I think any rational Republican would tell you that. But, um, you know, I, I do think that it, that a wall or some sort of a barrier does need to be discussed. Yeah. And, and that's not I, I don't think that should be out of bounds and it's not unreasonable. But like, obviously, for the drug example, if we know and we, we have a pretty good sense that something like around 90 percent of the illegal drugs come in through ports of entry, then if that's your concern, then you probably don't focus yourself on where 10 percent of the drugs are coming, but where 90 percent are coming, that sort of thing. So, again, it's a question of not that this couldn't be effective, but how can we most how can we most efficiently spend our funds? And, you know, may, maybe that means some wall, but it probably means a lot more of other things, I would say. Yeah, I, I, uh, I think technology is, is going to be is going to have to be part of the equation, too. And, and also putting, you know, more border person, more people on the border to actually do the protecting. Um, you know, the fact that a lot of these people are down on the border now and are not armed um, is is really disconcerting. And I know, again, that's that's a super politicized issue. And, um, you know, obviously, it's it's become kind of a calling card of the left to say, you know, it, it's become sort of a, um, a, a civil rights issue and, and a question of do these people have the right to come here? And I think that most, you know, people, most reasonable people on both sides say, well, you know, they have, they, they can certainly try to come here, but do they have the right to be here and to, to just come in here? And I think that that's, you know, I, again, I, I think this could quickly turn into um, a big emergency and it's, it's something we're going to have to pay attention to, especially now with, with the rise of fentanyl and some of these other, you know, highly dangerous drugs. A lot of them are coming from, you know, across the border from Mexico, but a lot of them are coming in from other places in the world too, like China. So, you know, we probably need to be paying attention to some of these other things and not so much just focusing on one area when it comes to um, drugs coming into the country, too. No, I entirely agree. Secure borders are incredibly important. And uh, I think we can we could do and we should do an awful lot more in that area. Mm-hmm, definitely. All right. Well, on, the, on that note of agreement, we will end today. That's it for this episode. Thanks, everyone, for listening. We do hope you like what you heard. 
Of course, listener support is what keeps the show going. We really appreciate it. And when you become a sustaining supporter of the show on Patreon, you get our gratitude as well as a bunch of other stuff like our bonus shows and all kinds of other stuff. And to check out what, uh, what what's in store, if you're a supporter, go to patreon.com slash politics guys, or you can just visit the support page on our website politicsguys.com slash support and if you haven't already subscribed to the show it'd be great if you could leave reviews on itunes or whatever app you're listening to on that helps as well and hey if you got a question comment correction or just want to i don't know throw a random thought our way you can reach us at mail at politicsguys.com there's our facebook page where you can message us where we post stuff throughout the week that's facebook.com slash politicsguys page and we're also on twitter at politicsguys the executive producers of Politics Guys are Michael Baranowski, Jay Carson, Bruce Johnson, Wilmer Moreno, and Benji Fishman. Today's show is produced by Michael Baranowski. We'll be back with a new show on Wednesday. We hope you'll join us.